you pray with me? Lord, I come to you as one that is incapable of effectively preaching your words to us this morning. You need to speak through me. This isn't a desire. It is a need. I need you to speak through me to build your church up. So remove self from the equation. Glorify yourself through me as we talk about the massive forgiveness of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're just going to look at this morning, as we continue our series called The School of Prayer, Forgive Us Our Debts. And I want us to see, it's a very simple purpose this morning, to understand to some extent and maybe even gain a better understanding of the depth of your sin, of our sin, and the breadth and magnitude of the forgiveness of God. It's really kind of radical, and so we're going to be using this word a lot. Uh, I want to talk about our radical need. Uh, remember the 1991 comedy? I'm not sure if you saw it or not. What about Bob? With Bill Murray? Well, Bill Murray plays the title character. He's kind of an obsessive, compulsive personality that just has all of these needs. In the movie, he says this. He says, I have problems breathing, problems swallowing, numb lips, fingernail sensitivity, pelvic discomfort. What if my heart stops beating? What if I'm looking for a bathroom and I can't find one and my bladder explodes? So he clearly has some problems. He has some needs. Now, the point about this radical need is, and this is what we've learned and what John Ortberg points out in his book called Soul Keeping, that our souls are Bob. Our souls are Bob. Because it is the nature of our souls to need. Thomas Aquinas, the great writer, wrote this, that the neediness of the human soul is a pointer to God. This is why Blaise Pascal said, this famous quote, that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Now, as human beings, the way we've been created, we are limited in virtually every way. We are limited by our intelligence, and just ask my wife about my intelligence, she'll tell you how limited it is. We are limited by strength, our energy, even our morality, we are limited. But there is one area that we are unlimited. We have unlimited desire. See, we always want more. God created our souls that way. 
Well, why? Because the soul's infinite capacity to desire is the mere image of God's infinite capacity to give. That's how we were created. Now, our soul's problem, though, is not its neediness, but its fallenness. Now, Satan took advantage of the soul's desire for more when he deceived Eve. Do you remember his lie to Eve in Genesis 3, 4, and 5? The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's more available. That, in essence, was the lie and the temptation to Eve. He believed the lie that God was holding her back from more. She could be like God. Now, our neediness, which was meant to point us to God, instead pointed us away from God to self and sin. And that sin, obviously we know, separates us from God, who we need the most. That is our radical need. But because of our sin, we are now in what we call a state of radical corruption. To understand the depth of our sin problem, we're going to look at a very unpopular theological truth. Some call it total depravity. Some call it radical corruption. But we have to begin by defining sin. Now, to give you the, the, a comprehensive understanding of sin, these are five different words that the Bible uses to describe sin. You can see that we've pretty much covered every conceivable way that, that we can offend God. The Greek word hamartia means to miss the mark. Obviously, I've taught you this in the Sunday school class in evangelism because you miss the mark of perfection. That's sin. The second word there means to step across. You've done this with your children. If you're a parent and have children, you say you can go this far, you can draw a line in the sand. If you go past this line, you're in trouble. Of course, what do our kids inevitably do? They cross the line. They step across. That's us. We miss the mark of perfection. We always step across the line. It's like do not touch in a fine jewelry store. What is the temptation to do? Cross that line and touch it. Uh, the Greek word anomia means lawlessness. We break God's laws. Uh, we slip or fall. We are incapable of standing in righteousness. And of course, there's the word debt. We are in debt to God. That's the word used in Matthew 6.12 when he says, forgive us our debts. We are in debt to God. Now Matthew uses that word because he had a Jewish audience. And they would have understood what he meant. Because to a Jew, the primary responsibility in life was to obey God. When you disobeyed God, guess what? You owed him a debt. Now, because of our unrelenting sin, in every conceivable way we sin, as you can see from these words, we owe God such a massive debt that we can never repay it. Now, I want to dust off this term for a moment. 
radical corruption or total depravity. What does that mean? Well, it means that the fall of man into sin at the Garden of Eden, it was so serious that it affects the whole person. Did you know that? In other words, I'm going to come at the, the lie that human beings are basically good. The fallness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. How do we know that? Think of the coronavirus. This is why we get, become ill and why we die. It affects our minds, our thinking. Now, we still have the capacity to think, but our mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will is now in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. And it didn't take long when man fell into sin because in the Genesis, what does God say happened shortly after the fall of man? Every intent, every thought of man's heart was what? Continuously evil. So the body, the mind, the will, the spirit, the whole person, we've been affected by the power of sin. I want to use the word term radical corruption because the term radical has to deal with something that permeates to the core of a person or a thing. This is not something superficial. The effects of the fall penetrate the very core of our being. Let me give an example. I think everybody here has at least heard of the, the great early church father, Augustine, called St. Augustine. It is well known, and you can read it in his biography, he ran with a sketchy crowd as a teen. They were known as the Destructors. One night after the gang had finished playing sports in the streets of their neighborhood, their attention turned to a pear tree. You familiar with this story, anybody? That was heavy with ripe fruit. The tree did not belong to any of their families. But it grew on a plot adjacent to that of Augustine's family. The boys did not find the pears tempting in their, their color or in their flavor, meaning they weren't hungry. But nevertheless, they just wanted to steal them. And they went to the base of that tree, shook it down, and took the ripe pears. And Augustine says this, We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, having no inducement or no movement to evil, but simply evil itself. Years later, riding in his mid-forties, Augustine looked back on this theft and was struck by the fact that he did not even want the pears. Yet he knew the pears were not his. But the natural law that he should not steal the property of others, this is what pushed him to steal the pears. And I know that we all can relate to this. He took a pear merely to throw it to the pigs. 
not for the pig's sake, but for the sake of his own desire to disobey. He explains his act this way. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I'm going to take it by the silence that you can relate to that story. Years ago, and this is the only reason why I know this story, the Christian rock band Petra wrote a song called St. Augustine's Pears. It recounted this event in his life, and there are two lines from this song that I think sum it all up. Because I love the wrong, even though I knew a better way. That is us. That is our radical corruption. But it gets even worse. Our sin problem is so serious, even we do what is right, we miss the mark. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Go to Psalms, make a right. You'll come to the prophet Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. A verse that some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. If you start to feel a little heavy right now in this sermon, that's okay. I want us to transfer the weight of our sin to embrace and glorify and praise the God for his the abundant provision that he has provided for us. Isaiah 64, 6, talking about the depth of our sin. It's so serious. It says this, we've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. If you didn't know this, you're going to know it now, but the term filthy rags is really a very, very strong word. It's a translation of the Hebrew word itta, which literally means the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. So therefore, the, self, the righteous acts of sinners are considered by God as a soiled feminine hygiene product. That's how corrupt we are. Because of the depth of our corruption, this is mind-boggling, and you know people like this. It was you, it was me. We still, humanity, still clings to the lie that we can earn God's favor. By our righteous acts. That's why Martin Luther said it is the most damnable heresy that ever plagued the mind of man that he can somehow make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all holy God. It is a lie that is deep within man. That is our radical corruption in an abbreviated form. We miss all these we sin in every conceivable way, and our attempts to please God are as filthy rags to Him. Because of that, there's what I call a radical consequence. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. We'll look at that this week, this passage this week and next week. Matthew 18, starting at verse 23. 
says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, as I researched this some more this week, I learned some things I want to share with you. When Jesus uses the word servant, we, I think, have a wrong understanding of what he means by the word servant. He's referring to a provincial governor who served the king by ruling certain areas of the kingdom on the king's behalf. And the provincial governor's responsibility primarily was to collect taxes and report those taxes back to the king. The tax money, which was rightfully the king's, was to be turned over to the king for the support of the entire kingdom. Are you with me so far? Now, this provincial governor in this parable of Jesus owed 10,000 talents. Here is a, a comparison to give you an idea of how astronomical this number is. At the same period of time that Jesus told this parable, the total revenue collected by the Roman government for Idumea, Judea, and Samaria totaled 600 talents. So all the taxes they collected for all those areas totaled only 600 talents. The total revenue collected from Galilee was only 300 talents. So how did this governor owe the king such an astronomical amount? Well, the clear implication is that this governor collected the taxes, embezzled the money, and then wasted 10,000 talents. That is the largest numerical term in the Greek language, the term 10,000. So he owed a debt beyond any ability to even calculate. This is our sin. This is our offense to God. When we are brought before God and we are faced with the fact that the sum of our sin is beyond comprehension. This is how we must think about our sin. And what is the consequence of a debt that could never be paid? Look at verse 25. It gives the answer. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had in payment to be made. You see, you've got to make some kind of payment. That's the point. Verse 25 is a picture of hell. Where else are men sent to pay for their sin? Hell is a place where we pay the penalty for our sins. So people go to hell to pay for their sins, but keep in mind, all eternity in hell will still not pay for their sins. Can this man pay it back, ever? 
No. So all eternity in hell will so not pay for their sins. That they just go there and pay what could be paid. And sadly, men who have spent, and women, who have spent eternities, not in eternity, but eternities, plural, in hell, will be no better for their payment than they were when they began. They are no more fit for heaven at the end of that time than they were at the beginning. So when the offense of sin is understood properly, you see that life in and of itself, and hear me on this, is an act of mercy. I, you, all of us, could have and probably should have been sent to hell as soon as we were born because that's when we incurred the debt. Because we were born in sin. So life is an act of mercy because of our sin. Now, here's the thing. If sin is a problem, and it is, then forgiveness is the provision. Let's talk about the radical provision of God. So, what is forgiveness? Well, it is God passing by our sins. This idea comes from Micah 7, 18. I'll just read it to you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Now, do you remember the effects of our sin or the, all the definitions of our sin? You see this? It's kind of a every conceivable angle of, of, of sin and how we can offend God. Look at God's provision This is what the Bible says he does with our sin. What do I mean by passing over our sins? Forgiveness is taking away our sin. It is covering our sin. It is blotting out our sin. And it is forgetting our sin. Now when missionaries in northern Alaska were translating the Bible into the language of the Eskimos, they discovered that there was no word in that language for forgiveness. After much patient listening, however, they discovered a word that means not being able to think about it anymore. That word was used throughout the translation to represent forgiveness. Because God's promise to sinners is, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Thank God for his forgiveness. Amen. Verse 27 of chapter 18. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, the king forgave an absolutely incomprehensible debt in a moment of compassion for the debtor. We know that compassion flows out of a soft heart filled with love. Somehow, the king happened to love that servant 
as God loves all men. And when he considered the man's situation in which there was no remedy, here's the thing. It did not change his love. Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Thank God they're new every morning. Now, even though this king's kingdom had been robbed, he'd been personally sinned against in a way beyond anything that you've ever dreamed you could imagine you could be sinned against. The king still forgave him. Look at the end of verse 27. Forgave him the debt. Do you know what the Greek actually says there? Forgave him the loan. The loan? What do you mean the loan? But the king is so tender-hearted, he considers it a loan instead of embezzled debt. This servant didn't do anything to deserve such radical forgiveness. So how magnanimous is the grace of God? So now we get to what I call go from radical corruption, you know, radical need to radical corruption and radical provision and so on, to we get to what I call regular confession. We get to the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> Forgive us our debts is what we pray. Here's the question. Our Father. What does that imply? Relationship, intimacy, it means that you're a child of God. You're a Christian, right? Why, then, am I asking God to forgive my sins? Why do I regularly pray for the forgiveness of sins? Well, in order to understand this, you need to understand two concepts. Number one, and you probably want to write this down, because this prayer doesn't make any sense. It's what is called I call judicial forgiveness. God is a judge and he declares you guilty. You have broken his laws. You're under his judgment and condemnation. And there must be a payment. There must be punishment. But then God the judge says, on the basis of the death of my son, Jesus Christ, he bore your punishment. He has paid the price of your debt. I declare you forgiven. That is the judicial act of God. It is full and it is complete and it declares you forgiven. You are positionally forgiven. So by this judicial act, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are completely and forever forgiven. Now when does this happen to you, to me, to any believer? That's the moment we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. God puts your sin on Jesus. And gives you Jesus' righteousness and declares you justified. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That is judicial forgiveness. But there's also relational forgiveness. If you use God not as a righteous judge, but as a loving father. And even though we've been judicially forgiven forever in God's eyes, we still sin. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, when you understand briefly kind of what the, the scope of what the Bible says about sin and the depth of our corruption and all the ways that we offend God by our sin. 
It is our nature to sin. It's human nature because of the fall. And when we sin, it hinders our relationship with God. What we lose is the joyful intimacy with him. This is why we practice 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we pray, forgive us our debts, it's talking about confession of sin. When we confess our sin, our fellowship and joy with God is restored. And I want to illustrate this. Turn to Psalm 51. You'll see this. There's a plenty of places we could look at. I just want to give you one particular place in the Old Testament. Plus, it's easy to find. It's right in the middle of your Bible. It's Psalm chapter 51. David has sinned. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has suffered from that. For about a year, by the way, he was living with unconfessed sin and his relationship with God suffered. No psalms were written during that time until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And this is what he writes. Let me hear joy and gladness. Meaning what? He wasn't hearing joy and gladness from the Lord. His joy had been taken from him. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The weight and the guilt of sin was like his bones being crushed. And he wants to once again, what? Rejoice. Joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What? Restore to me joy. The joy of fellowship with you. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, judicial forgiveness takes care forever the fact of salvation. But relational forgiveness takes care of the day-to-day joy of salvation. So the first part of this petition, forgive us our debts, is talking about confession. A brief reminder, what is biblical confession? Well, just listen to me here. It's found in the example of one of many. can be found in the book of Ezra. Ezra had just learned of the enormous sin of Israel. It defiled the whole community. In particular, Israelite men had taken to marrying pagan women from the nations around them. Obviously, such marriages were expressly forbidden by God. Ezra comes to God weeping, weeping and confessing the sin of the people. Now, folks, he has not personally committed this sin. But his people have. And he's overwhelmed to the point of weeping for the sin of his people because it offends his God whom he loves. And in verses 6 and 7 of Ezra chapter 9, he writes this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And so while he's praying at the temple, A large group of people join him in crying and confessing their sin. And the people follow up their weeping and confession of sin by devising and then executing a plan to send away the foreign forbidden wives. 
Simply naming sin, that's not complete confession. Biblical confession is always accompanied by genuine remorse and repentance. A changed life. We confess. We pray, forgive us our debts to restore the joy of fellowship with God. And you know from experience, we all do, there is nothing that so takes the joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the conscience. The late Dr. F.E. Marsh, he tells, this is a true story, that on one occasion he was preaching on the importance of confession of sin and wherever possible of restitution for wrong done to others. The close of the sermon, a young man, a member of, our, of the church, came up to him with a troubled countenance and said, Pastor, I have wronged another and I'm ashamed to confess it or to even try to put it right. You see, I'm a boat builder, and the man I work for is an unbeliever. I've talked to him often about his need of Christ and urged him to come and hear you preach, but he scoffs and ridicules at it all. Now, I've been guilty of something that, if I should acknowledge it to him, will ruin my testimony forever. He then went on to say that some time ago, he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. In this work, copper nails are used because they do not rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive. The young man had been carrying home quantities of them to use on the job. He knew it was stealing. But he tried to ease his conscience by telling himself that the owner had so many, he would never miss them. Besides, he was not being paid what he thought he deserved. But this sermon had brought him face to face with the fact that he was just a common thief, for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But he, he said, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I have done or offer to pay for those I have used and return the rest. If I do, he will think I am just a hypocrite. And yet those copper nails are digging into my conscience. And I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. And for weeks, this young man struggled. And one night, he came to Dr. Marsh and exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled the issue of the copper nails and my conscience is relieved at last. The pastor asked, what happened when you confessed to your employer what you had done? Oh, he answered, he looked oddly at me, then exclaimed, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite. But now I begin to feel that there's something in this Christianity after all. Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he'd been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. But the story doesn't end there. Dr. Marsh asked if he might use his story, was granted permission, and sometimes afterwards he told it in another city. 
The next day, a lady came up and said, Doctor, I've had copper nails on my conscience too. Why, surely you're not a boat builder, he asked. No, but I'm a book lover, and I have stolen a number of books from a friend of mine who gets far more than I could ever afford. I decided last night I must get rid of the copper nails. So I took them all back to her today and confessed my sin. And I can't tell you how relieved I am. She forgave me, and God has forgiven me. I am so thankful the copper nails are not digging into my conscience anymore. But the story doesn't end there. Dr. Marsh also testifies that I have told this story many times, and almost invariably people have come to me afterwards telling of copper nails in one form or another that they had to get rid of. On one occasion, as I told at a high school chapel service, the next day the principal saw me and said, as a result of that copper nail story, Many stolen fountain pens and other school items have been returned to their rightful owners. I'm going to close with this wonderful thought from King David, Psalm 32. Again, the context here is he had wrote this after he had confessed his sin with Bathsheba, whom he had committed adultery with. By the way, he also committed murder and so on. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And this is such a great thought. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 55, 6 and 7, God abundantly pardons. He abundantly forgives. So when you pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. What you're doing in your prayers is you're not necessarily saying, forgive us our debts. What you should be doing is you are confessing your sin to God. You know why you confess your sin to God? Because this is obviously the application point. You're not asking for God to forgive your sins. What are you asking God to do? To restore the joy, restore the fellowship and the joy that comes fellowship with God. Because what Jesus is saying here is that God wants to ultimately Fellowship with you. Because what's the goal of prayer? Remember the very first sermon on this prayer series? To commune with God. He wants to be with you. Yeah, put him first, right? Hallow his name, his kingdom first, his will be done, all that. But then, and I want to provide for your physical needs, and he has abundantly blessed us. Forgive our debts. Confess your sin. Let's fellowship. Let's enjoy each other. But you've got to get rid of those copper nails.
and I'm going to prepare you, okay? I hoped it wouldn't be as heavy in here as I think it is right now. It's a great, we have been abundantly forgiven, but I will warn you, next week may be tough. Because we talk about forgiving others. In the degree to which you're forgiven by God, this is abundantly clear. Forgive us our debts as, I hate that word in there, as we forgive our debtors. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness we have, that we have, and I don't want to just gloss over this, Father, but you have abundantly pardoned us. Past, present, and future sins, all dealt with. Restore to us, as we focus on confessing our sins this week, restore the joy of our fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great Sunday. My guess is some of you may need some sleep, as I do. Get some. Rest. Take a Sabbath. Rejuvenate your bodies.